0: Well, good morning, Gresham Bible Church. Great to see everybody today. And that even includes those of you out there who I will be looking at your 49ers logos as I look out upon you. It is good to see you as well. Yes, I mean that. Um, we're gonna be wrapping up our series today in the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 27. So if you wanna start making your way there, I hope for you, I know it has been for me, uh, life-giving is what comes to mind to start our year in the book of Psalms in a series we've entitled The Problem of Pain. So, as we start our year, we come out of the holidays, a new year's before us, many of us, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, are struggling and feeling the weight. Uh, of pain. And so we want to process our pain with the Lord in community through his word and view of the gospel. So today is going to be our last in our series of the problem of pain and Psalm 27. And I'm curious as we're coming up to the text, how many of you would own or people around you would say that you're a fearful person? Are you a fearful person? And if so what makes you afraid? I want you to have that on your mind and on your heart as we're going to be coming to Psalm 27 today. And I think you'd probably agree with me, doesn't it feel like our time and place, our cultural moment, whatever you want to say, isn't it just like dripping, oozing with fear no matter where you turn? Like fear is all around you. Fear is the fuel for marketing, for headlines. Fear makes us do certain things. So whether you call yourself a fearful person or not, our context is one that's shaped and motivated by fear. So that's what we're bringing with us today before we come into Psalm 27. So I'm going to... Read Psalm 27 for us aloud, and we're going to see David in the midst of real fear, real fear. He's going to ask God for one thing, this one thing that will make him strong and will let his heart take courage. So look down at the text in front of you at Psalm 27. I'm going to read it aloud for us before we begin. Psalm 27, this is God's word. The Lord is my light and my salvation Father God, we need you today. We need to hear from you today through your word with whatever each of us is bringing to this moment, Lord. I pray that you will meet us here, that you will give us a sense of your presence today. Make your gospel sweet to us. Lift our eyes from ourselves and our fears to you. Open your word to us this morning and open us to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Psalm 27. What an awesome text. I'm sure maybe some of your favorite Psalms, some of you in this room. So we're going to walk through it together. We're not going to exhaust it, but we're going to explore it together. And we're going to see three different movements in the text. First, fear. And it's not quite linear, but fear is going to be verses one through three and verse 10. Then we're going to see the second movement, beauty. And that's the core verse in our passage. That's verse four and then verse 13. And then we're going to end, the third point is wait. And that's the last verse in the chapter, verse 14. So first, fear. And I want you to literally put your finger on God's word, on the text in front of you, and follow along with me. Look at the struggle of David in verses 1 through 3 and verse 10. What's it say? David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Verse three, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. So there's this army arising against him in verse three, and then look down at verse 10. What's it say? What's his other fear? For my father and my mother have forsaken me but the Lord will take me in. So what's his struggle? What's he confronted with here in Psalm 27? There's two different kinds or fronts of the fear that he's wrestling with. First, there's this external fear in verse three, the fear of literal war rising against him made up of evil doers that seek to destroy and devour him. So think of David, the character of David, for those of you that know your Bible, think what he went through. So this external fear he's giving voice to in verse three, this was a legitimate, real thing to be afraid of, right? There were real people with real weapons really looking to destroy and devour him, looking to kill him. So he has this external fear that kind of comes out of our text in verse three, but there's also another kind of fear too, Again, look at verse 10. He also has an internal fear, doesn't he? So there's just war rising against him external fear, but he also has fear kind of welling up from inside of him. And that's the fear of being forsaken, of his even his mother and father would leave him. He's afraid of being forsaken by those who are closest to him. He's afraid of really not being known and loved the fear of not belonging, the fear of being canceled and cast out by those who are supposed to be closest to him. So David is swimming in a pool of fear here in verse 27, fear outside of him and fear that's arising from inside of him. And again, I don't want us to think like, yeah, fear is just a figment of your imagination. These are real, true fears David has. Based on real, true enemies, realities in this world. And notice just the language in the psalm. I just want to ground us in this so we really understand it and have some takeaways. Notice how personal these fears are for him. It's not like in category or in theory, oh yeah, there could be the situation that hurts me. They're personal. They're real. In verse five, whom shall I fear? Not who should the people fear those other guys? Who shall I fear? Whom shall I be afraid? The evildoers of verse three are coming to assail me, David says. Not just the nation or another people group, they're coming after me. So that's the tone, the posture David has here. I, I hope this helps us. I want to draw us in to verse, chapter 27 in the fear part of this, right? So our problem of pain includes the problem of our fears. So it's not that as a follower of God If you really have true faith, if you're really following God, oh, you'll never be afraid. That's a figment of your imagination. That's not real. You will be afraid, just like David is here. David says it this way in Psalm chapter 56, verse 3. David said, when I am afraid, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. So it's a matter of what you do with your fears. So the external fears and the internal fears, those are the bookends of what are framing what David's gonna seek in the center of our chapter, okay? So David's saying, should his deepest fears be realized, whether it through this war that's assailing him, through exterior you know, uh, devastation and destruction assailing him, even violence, or maybe even the greatest possible internal pain, of being forsaken by those who are supposed to love him. Even in that, if either of those should happen or both of them, David's saying, but if I have this one thing, this one thing, I'm gonna be okay. And really I'm gonna be way more than just okay. David says this one thing is what makes him be able to say that his heart will not fear, that when he is afraid, he will trust in God. This one thing gives him humble courage and confidence because this is the one thing he's preaching to himself in his fear, right? And then he can say, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I be afraid? The foundation of him being able to say that and pray that in his prayers is the one thing that we're gonna see here in a minute. Because of this one thing David is really saying, what can people ultimately do to me? The worst thing David is going to walk us through that people can do to me is kill me. That's the worst thing someone can do to me. But do you know what? That only changes my address as a follower of God. That doesn't really kill me. That's this one thing that's undergirding all of what he's going through. So this one thing, I'm not trying to, you know, overpromise and underdeliver. I'm not trying to oversell it. This one thing really is the one thing of Psalm 27, the one thing for a follower of God that makes you able to process your fear with God. The one thing that gives us courage no matter what time and place you're living in, our cultural moment or David's cultural moment. There's this one thing that gives you humble courage this one thing you absolutely have to have in your life to overcome fear, whether the fear outside of you or the fear inside of you, okay? So what's this one thing? So now I wanna focus our gaze, focus our attention, focus our worship on verse four. The one thing is beauty. Look at verse four. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So the one thing David asked God for the one thing he's going to seek after the one thing he wants to dwell in the house of God for is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in God's temple to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So the one thing is the beauty of God. It's beholding the beauty of God, gazing at the beauty of God in a sustainable way. It's not a glance. It's a gaze. The eyes of your heart, your spiritual eyes gazing on the beauty of the Lord is David's one thing here in Psalm 27 that's about our problem of fear. So there's three key words just real quick we have to be clear on to really make sure that we're, we're feeling and we're, we have an accurate understanding of God's word in front of us. So the three words, gaze, Gaze means here in in Psalm 27, it means to behold, okay? So when you hear gaze, you're thinking behold. Inquire here, to inquire of God in his temple, means to meditate, to seek, to care. In the context of Psalm 27, it has this idea of seeking God to hear his truth. So you're to behold, to gaze on God's beauty and to inquire of God, to know him in his truth. So again, what is David gazing upon? Not glancing, gazing his prayers to behold, to seek this. It's the beauty of the Lord. So the third thing, we need to make sure we're really clear on what does the beauty of the Lord mean? A, we will spend all eternity future understanding that. I'm not going to give you one definition in a sermon to wrap it up, but it basically captures the essence of God and his godness like what Josh prayed for us. It's God in all he is, in all his attributes together, in the light of his glory, it means his delightfulness, the surpassing beauty of who God is. That's David's one thing. So again, with fears all around him, outside of him and inside of him, his fear of even being forsaken, David is saying the one thing he needs the one thing he seeks is God himself. He is looking for the beauty of God, looking for satisfaction in who God is in himself. Not what he can get from God, but who God is himself. David says, if I have that, I can face anything. These armies seeking to assail me, even if my mother and father forsake me, I, if I have this one thing, I'm going to be okay. That's what David is saying in Psalm 27, because the beauty of God is the one thing that enables him and enables God's people to face anything. Wow. So the second point, beauty has to be really important, isn't it? If it helps us, if it enables us to overcome fear like this. I just want to sit here for a minute as I've been reflecting on Psalm 27. I think it's really important that we just take a minute to kind of catch our breath and reflect on beauty together for a minute. Okay. So it doesn't just feel like some like spiritual like idea that's floating out there. I want us to lean in to beauty. The philosopher Immanuel Kant, he talked about beauty. He talked about our hunger and capacity for beauty. And Kant said that it's infinite and bottomless. You can never satisfy your hunger for beauty is what Kant said. He talked about how we as human beings, we can't avoid our own pursuit of beauty. It's hardwired in us. We're hardwired for beauty and to seek beauty. And we seek a beauty that's not like inside you, It's a beauty that's outside of you. Kant says that appetite, that hunger is bottomless. You can't satisfy it all the way. So the issue for us as people reading Psalm 27, the issue for David wasn't whether you seek beauty or not. It's what beauty you seek, okay? And then I just want us to, again, think, reflect, meditate, inquire of the Lord in his temple here together in community under God's word, think about it. What is one of the most beautiful places you've ever been? Like, do you have just that snapshot in your mind, like your happy place? You know, what's that place for you? Is it Mount Hood on a beautiful, bright day, maybe even like today? Is it your favorite trip at the beach and the sunsets going down and just the grandeur of it is just overwhelming to you? Is it maybe the Grand Canyon and just the vastness of it and it feels like another world, right? What is that place for you? That just place that, oh, that place is so beautiful. And I want you to think about that for a minute. Some of you in this room have reflected on this already, but what made that so impactful for you? Was it that it made you feel really strong and capable? Or did you get caught up in something greater than yourself? It made you feel small, and that was good, and you were captured up in beauty, a beauty that's outside of you, okay? Or think about this. So you have these favorite places in your mind, whatever that may be. Think about it more like experientially. Think about your favorite piece of art, maybe your favorite piece of music or a painting, whatever that is. Think about your favorite piece of art. What does it mean for those of you that have like your favorite song, favorite artist, favorite piece of music, what does it mean to get like lost in the music? Have you ever thought about that? Like you know it like intuitively, but what is that thing that you get lost in your favorite piece of art? Isn't it that like in some sort of way, like you're tasting, you're experiencing, you're seeing, you're gazing on something outside of you, right? That is giving you, impressing some sort of meaning on your soul, some kind of hope, some side of joy that's like outside of you that's meeting you in that moment, right? So just reflect on beauty, the beauty of creation, the beauty of just art and how we experience it. And hear this quote, Leonard Bernstein, some of you in this room know who this is. He's a famous composer, conductor guy. He didn't know Jesus, but listen to what he said about beauty, Bernstein said that when he listened to Beethoven's Fifth, he couldn't help but believe and feel, listen to this, there's something right in the universe that will never let me down. Wow. Beauty does that to us in our creatureliness. It takes us outside of our outside of us. Bernstein said again, there's something right in the universe that will never let me down when he heard, when he saw, when he experienced true beauty. So when you see and experience something beautiful, whether that be your favorite view of a mountain, your favorite piece of art, whatever that is, you don't think about how you can use that thing, do you? You just experience for what it is in itself. And it gives you joy and purpose and meaning and hope, right? Like I love Mount Hood. When a few years ago and we were looking for a new place to live, there was this house that had a view of Mount Hood and it didn't work out for us to get it. And it, God knew it wouldn't be good for me to have that house because I wouldn't do anything. All I would do is just sit there at Mount Hood the whole time and just soak in its beauty, right? That's That's for me, that beautiful place. I don't think how I can use Mount Hood to serve my ends and what I want, right? I just glory and bask in the greatness and beauty of Mount Hood. That's the kind of beauty we're talking about here in Psalm 27. So in verse four, David's one thing again, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. The one thing is that he wanted to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, that he will see and behold God as God is, as the all satisfying one, as the beautiful one. So to gaze in this kind of way, again, it's not just a glance. It's not just informational. It's transformational, isn't it? This gazing implies worship and fixing your affections and your intellect and all your being on this beautiful thing. It's like admiration is the type of gazing that's happening here. And then later on, this kind of carries into verse eight where David says, uh, he hears God. God tells him, you have said, seek my face. So, David's heart says to God, Your face, Lord, do I seek. So, here in Psalm 27, David is seeking. He is seeking to gaze on the beauty of God. He has a sense, vaguely even, of all the beauty of God means of God's greatness and His glory, His holiness, His grace, His mercy, His tenderness, His loving kindness, His sovereignty. God in who he is, his beauty. David knows he needs an experience of that. That's his one thing. The beauty of who God is again in God himself, not for how David can use God in his fears, but how he can simply behold who God is. David knows this one thing again. I want you to hear this It's not a one thing like a fact you memorize to cram before finals for those of high schoolers who just got through finals week. It's not that kind of gazing and knowing. It's a gazing that impresses on the core of your being, on your heart. That's the kind of gazing and beholding the beauty of God here. David is realizing he's to delight in God, to taste and see that God is good and that God will completely satisfy his deepest desires for beauty. That's what David is seeking here in the temple as he seeks God. He needs to gaze at the beauty of God because something is beautiful when we find it satisfying in itself, not how we can use it, but it's beautiful in itself. So not about you? I just pause. <laughs> that can sound really like spiritual, really biblical, really nod your head but don't each of us here need to gaze at God like this to behold him in his beauty, to fix the eyes of our hearts on God to find him satisfying. So I wanna press this into us as a local congregation, individually, collectively right now. Ask yourself, honestly, when was the last time you spent praising God like this? Can you remember that? or does it feel like a really, really long time ago? When do you inquire of God in his word to behold his beauty? Not what you can get from God, but just to behold him as beautiful. Do you seek God to gaze on his beauty, to behold his beauty? And these are really, really critical questions, diagnostic questions to ask yourself. Because if we're not doing that, we're using God. We're not beholding God as beautiful. It's been said, listen to this, it's been said that moralists find God to be useful. Christians find God to be beautiful. So do you find God useful or beautiful? Those are two very different things. There's a slide here. It's a longer quote, but I promise you it's worth the payoff. Follow along with me. It's from Jonathan Edwards. Edwards writes this about beauty and God and this kind of seeking. Thus, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So there is a difference between believing that God is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. Moralists find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. So when was the last time you tasted of the honey sweetness of God as beautiful? Do you have a sense of that overwhelming greatness and glory of the beauty of God? Or is your soul this morning you're bringing in as we gather, starved for the beauty of God, running on fumes? That's where Psalm 27 takes us. So if that's you today, I want to encourage you to confess and repent of finding God more useful than beautiful. So join me in this confessing and repenting. Repent of being too easily pleased with the simple beauties of this world rather than the source of all beauty, and that's God himself. Look to Christ gaze on God's beauty, the source of all true beauty, and seek him afresh, inquire of him in his temple, in his word, and be satisfied in God for who God is. That's the journey we're called to be on in this life as we wrestle with the problem of pain is to behold God as beautiful. Because if you're not gazing on the beauty of God, what is Psalm 27 highlighting for us? you're going to be gazing on your fears. You're either gazing on God's beauty or gazing on your fears. So I want to to help us like sink our teeth into the sweetness of honey here for a minute. Okay. Again, that can sound like hyper spiritual. What does that mean for me this week? As I was studying and reflecting on this, Um, I heard this pastoral encouragement from Tim Keller in, uh, I think it was a sermon or a book, I don't remember where, and I want to relay it to you. So how do you feed, how do you behold on the beauty of God in practical ways like prayer, right? So I just want to relay this encouragement to you. When you petition God, when you ask God for certain things, Keller talks about that we need to pray in a way that finds God satisfying to keep God's beauty in view, And Keller says this, I'd encourage you to file this away and bring it out again during our week of prayer and fasting in a few weeks. Keller says to never petition God for something in prayer without seeing how the very thing you're praying for is ultimately in God already. That makes God beautiful and not just useful. So God does call us to cast our cares on him, right? God cares about my fear, about your fears, about your struggle, about our problem of pain. So if you're out of work, you pray for work. If you're sick, you pray for healing. If you're afflicted, you pray for comfort. All of those things, yes, run to God in prayer. Process all of that with God in prayer. But as you're doing that, as you petition God Always praise God that whatever that thing you're praying for is, ultimately you already have in God through the gospel. Okay. Does that, does that make sense? That's like a practical following God, applying the beauty of God in our walking with Him. So, like, if, if someone is, is sick. You, you pray for them. He expounds on this. I'll just give you a takeaway. That when you're praying for someone sick, we pray for healing and we also praise God that the only thing that can ultimately hurt us and kill us, sin, has been paid for by Jesus. So that's how in our petitioning, in our praying, we, we lean into the beauty of God, okay? We don't just find God useful, we find him beautiful. So the core of Psalm 27, there's so much here. The core of Psalm 27 is saying that if your heart's desire for beauty is satisfied in the ultimate beauty of God, then there won't be a power on the face of the earth you should be afraid of. No external fear can compare to that. No internal fear can compare to that. It's about that one thing, seeking, gazing upon the beauty of God. So your bottomless hunger for beauty will ever only and fully be satisfied by the beauty of God. He is the source of all true beauty. All other beauty is either a derivative of God's beauty or a distortion of God's beauty. Your seeking for beauty really, really matters. So is your one thing, is our one thing as a church, the one thing of Psalm 27? It's a question it forces us to ask. And if you're feeling like there's a gap between what Psalm 27 calls you to and your day to day life and your experience, you're not alone. So did David. And that's the beauty of Psalm 27. Okay. David, when you just, if you study Psalm 27, it's actually like shocking. It kind of just makes you jump up in your chair. There's a huge tone shift. Verses one through six, it's like, glorious, beauty, I'm confident, whom shall I fear? And then seven, it starts to shift a little bit. By verse nine, David's in pain again. It's almost like he's having a spiritual anxiety attack. He's asking God not to cast him off just after what he was praying. The shift in tone is so strong in Psalm 27, A lot of commentators say it feels like it was two psalms or poems or songs put together, but it's not because David experienced the same thing we do. We have this deep, insatiable, bottomless pit hunger for beauty, we're to seek and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and yet we don't, and yet we struggle, and yet we're in pain, and so this brings up to David this tension, this anxiety. So what's going on here in Psalm 27? in the movement from the first six verses to the second half. And that brings us to our third point, our third emphasis, and that's weight. So again, so far we've seen that David, he's surrounded by what? All these fears outside of him, a war against him, and these fears that are like deep, deep in the recesses of his heart. And then he prays for his one thing, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. But then again, look down at your Bible in front of you. Just hear feel, verses seven through 12. He's praying through his fears of God casting him off and others forsaking him right after he prayed verses four and six. And then how does this chapter end? Look down at verse 14. What's it say? Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So again, why was David so confident in the first half of the psalm? And then he almost started again to kind of have a spiritual anxiety attack in verses 7 through 12 that tees right up before the psalm ends. It's because of the one thing he prayed about. It's because of the nature of what he prayed for and sought back in verse 4. Look again at verse 4. Don't just have these be like words going in one ear and out the other like consider the words of verse four. What did David pray? To dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And after he like prays that, he has this forward looking posture. It's like he started to feel the weight of what he actually prayed for, the reality of what he prayed for. It's like he was praying to see God's glory, to behold the beauty of God in the center of the temple, in the holy of holies, the glory of God above the ark at the mercy seat. And then the reality of it, the weight of it just overwhelms him in the second half of Psalm 27. When David was pressing into what he was praying for, he realized that his sins needed to be atoned for in order to really behold the beauty of the Lord in the way that he prayed for it. Wow. He prayed to behold the beauty of the Lord in the temple. Do you get what he was praying for? He was praying for atonement. And then he felt his unworthiness and it spirals him into this spiritual anxiety attack. I want this beauty, but it feels so far from me. I'm not worthy of it. And that takes us into the second half of Psalm 27. David is saying, he's praying for it to go into God's presence to behold his beauty. And then it's like he remembers what he heard. He remembers what he was told, how Moses asked for that same thing, to behold the glory of God. And God says, no, that would kill you, Right? And later on, like Isaiah praises, he enters into God's presence in the first few chapters of Isaiah. And then he says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. David's starting to taste that in view of what he prayed in verse four. So David's lack is ex- exposed in the fullness of God's beauty, and specifically the beauty of God in his temple that sin has to be atoned for. That's pressing on David here. So how can David say his one thing is to gaze on the beauty of God? It's like he's realizing that he deserves, what he's asking God not to happen to him, that he deserves to be cast off, forsaken in view of the blazing magnitude and intensity of the beauty of God and atonement. Okay, so yet... Just Psalm 27 is beautiful and glorious, and it teaches us so much about God. And yet, somehow, he prayed at the beginning, God is his light and his salvation, right? And then somehow in verse 10, David prays and trusts at the end of verse 10 that God will take him in. How? How could David have that movement, right? How could he actually then pray God's gonna take me in in light of all that God's glory and beauty shows I need, right? Because Psalm 27 points us to the ultimate atonement for our sin, right? The person and work of Jesus Christ. Psalm 27 is looking forward to now what we look back on and that's the cross. The fullness of the beauty of God displayed so that we could seek him and know and taste the sweetness of God's beauty. So because David can say, but God will take me in, God's not gonna forsake me and I'll even wait on him and be filled with courage in the midst of my fears. The reason he can say that, because of the one who's gonna eventually come after him. Because Jesus was the perfect one who was forsaken by his father so that a holy God can take us in. Because God provided the atoning sacrifice we need to pay for our sin and to give us his beauty and he provided the sacrifice, didn't he? He provided his son. Do you see what Psalm 27 draws us into? We taste these beauties, are one thing we should seek, and there's this gap, and you can never close that gap yourself, but God did it for you so you can behold his beauty. Psalm 27 is amazing. In Jesus, we see the beauty of God. John chapter one says, Jesus made God known. David prayed for the beauty of God. In Jesus, we see the beauty of God. Jesus makes God known. David longed to see the face of God here in Psalm 27, didn't he? It's the longing of his heart. See the beauty, see the face of God. Well, the, the Bible ends, right? into end the story, Revelation 22, verse four, says that God's servants will worship him and that they will see his face. How can that be? Only through the beauty of the gospel. God is beautiful. He is not just useful. And his beauty saves us so that we can taste and see that he's good. And you know what's even more amazing? I was telling a brother here in the back, Psalm 27, we could spend weeks on and we would just be scratching the service. But you know what? One more thing that's amazing here is that David's one thing is a preview of the one thing for all of eternity in heaven. Because what does heaven behold and praise? The beauty of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. I'm not making it up. Look at Revelation chapter five. Worship is happening in the throne room of God, the one of all glory and beauty. And this myriad of worshipers fall down before the lamb and praise him for the beauty of the cross that takes away our sin and draws us to God's everlasting and all satisfying beauty. Psalm 27 points us to heaven and the beauty of God that we will be praising him forever and ever and ever. And there is no end. It's further up and further in that's what Psalm 27 points us to. The worshipers in Revelation 5, verse 12, they proclaim, they praise this with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The beauty of the Lord is seen most clearly in the gospel. And the atoning work of Jesus is praised and prized by heaven itself. That's the glory of this one thing in Psalm 27. Psalm 27, doesn't does it? It points us to the reality that the only way to experience the glory and the sweetness of God's beauty is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you're gonna taste the honey of God, of God's beauty, is through Jesus. So at the cross, we see the ultimate atoning sacrifice for our sin. In Jesus, we behold the beauty of God. So do you want to see God's beauty and taste its sweetness? Gaze, behold, fix your worship on the finished work of Jesus at the cross. Behold the cross, and behold the beauty of God. So by the end of this chapter, again, there's so much here. At the end of this chapter, David is worshiping while he waits, right? When you look at verse four, the temple wasn't even built yet. And yet that's what he's praying for is one thing. He's looking forward. He's trusting God with his deep desire for beauty. He's worshiping while he waits. His heart is taking courage and he waits on the Lord in the midst of his fears because his one thing is greater than the sum of all his fears. So as we close, Psalm 27 is glorious. We can never exhaust it, but I kind of want to leave us with, with two encouragements, okay? Two practical pastoral encouragements from Psalm 27. First, for the Christian, I can't say this strong enough. Your one thing has to be the one thing of Psalm 27 to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. If it's not, you will be sorely disappointed and you will live in your fear more than in the beauty of the Lord. Your one thing, our one thing as a local congregation of Jesus worshipers has to be the one thing of Psalm 27. Like David, though, even that prayer can feel overwhelming, doesn't it? We know we should have that as our one thing, and I don't. What do I do with that? That only highlights our neediness, and in our neediness, that only highlights the beauty of the gospel. So don't avoid the one thing of Psalm 27 because it feels so far beyond you or that's like what saints do. Well, in Christ, we're sinners and saints. So make the one thing of Psalm 27 your one thing, okay? The beauty of the Lord displayed in the gospel, that's not a thing that's far off from us. The beauty of the gospel brings God near to us. He's glorious and transcendent and more beautiful than we can ever imagine and yet he's as close to us as our next heartbeat. That's the beauty of the Lord, the tenderness and kindness of God in the gospel. So it's God's beauty that melts our fears. It's God's beauty that gives us courage as we worship God in our waiting, the waiting of the return of Jesus Christ. So our one thing has to be, not optional, has to be the one thing of Psalm 27 because we were made for this one thing, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And real quick, a core theme of scripture is that you become like what you behold. So this one thing in Psalm 27 is not optional for you. You become like what you behold. So as you pray, as you seek, as you dwell, as you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, you become more and more like our beautiful God, like the thing you were made for. Because if you're beholding your fears more than the beauty of God, you're just becoming more and more like the anxious age all around us. You have to behold the beauty of God or you're going to be gazing on your fears and those will take you to two very different places and make you into two very different kinds of people. So Psalm 27 highlights that we have to be more animated by the beauty of God than our fears and even real fears like David's fears as we gaze on the beauty of the gospel. And then God uses that to infuse us with this humble kind of courage we see the Psalm ending with. So we have to think of verse four. There's this dwelling idea. Dwelling here again means abiding. So Psalm 27 gives us the opportunity to reflect. Are you abiding in wells? in streams, in sources that feed and shape and cultivate your fears? Or are you abiding and dwelling in the beauty of God? Those will make you into two very different kinds of people. Are you dwelling in more? Are you seeking more? Are you gazing upon more the fears of this world and even what people tell you you should be afraid of? Oh, I didn't even know I should be afraid of that. Well, now I know. Thank you very much. What is that gonna do for you? Focusing on the fears of your heart will make you into a brittle person. It will become overwhelming and it will crush you. Or focusing, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord is life-giving Right? It's a beauty that you were made for and it fills you with courage like we see here in Psalm 27. So especially right now in God's providence, it's a great time to be the church. It's a great time to be the Christian here in Gresham, Oregon right now. In God's providence, right now especially, make your gaze, your one thing that you have to behold is the beauty of God more than your fears. And then the last thing I just wanna leave us with here is if you're here, as we say often, and you don't know Jesus yet, we're really glad you're here. And I hope maybe that God's spirit is working to take the scales off your eyes, okay? To take the plugs out of your spiritual ears to hear who God is, that he's really beautiful. I pray God's opening your heart and opening the curtains in the dark room of your soul so that his light can shine in like the light on a bright summer day to trust in Jesus, to know that God really is this good and this beautiful. So I would encourage you, if you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, to trust him with your fears. Ask him to forgive your sin of being satisfied in other beauties more than God's beauty. Because again, you're going to seek beauty, but there's only one beauty that died for you. One beauty that's patient with you, that'll never give up on you, that is forming you into the image of his son. And that's the beauty of God in the gospel. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus yet, let me encourage you. Let me charge you. Don't waste today and come to trust in God and know the beauty of God through Jesus Christ. So let me close this in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are our light and our salvation. We praise you, Lord, that you are beautiful in ways that we cannot even fathom, we can't even imagine, and yet you've made yourself known that you came down to us to save us, Lord, to forgive us of our sins and to pay the penalty we deserve for our sins of not finding you beautiful, and then to give us your beauty, Lord to uphold us and sustain us, to wait on you. So Father, I pray for each of us here today in this room and for us as a local church family, that we will be shaped by and abiding in and gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. And we ask all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.